For the past three years, the Science of Reading Star Awards have honored educators who are beacons of light, guiding their classrooms, schools, districts, and most importantly, students through transformations with literacy. Now join us as we honor this year's winners at a special celebration event, which will feature celebrity keynoters and past podcast guests, Mitchell Brookins. Two years ago, one of my students as a school administrator came to me on the playground and he said, Mr. Brookins, I want to be like the other kids. And I said, what do you mean? He said, Mr. Brookins, I want to learn how to read. And Malcolm Mitchell. When I scored a touchdown, they either probably put my name in a newspaper, people probably tell me good job all around town. But when I finished one book, no one ever said anything. So which one am I more likely to repeat? Find out more information and register for the 2024 Science of Reading Star Awards ceremony at amplify.com slash Star Awards celebrations. That's amplify.com slash Star Awards celebration, all one word. How do we help students become confident readers? And what do all our students need so they can enjoy reading success, especially during this unprecedented time? Welcome to Season 3 of Science of Reading, the podcast. I'm your host, Susan Lambert. This season, we're celebrating the 20th anniversary of Scarborough's Reading Rope, a model that helps us understand the complexities of learning to read and helps us focus on evidence-based practices. Each episode will cover elements of the model, what it means, and how it should impact classroom instruction. We've lined up a dream team of Science of Reading experts we think you'll really love. The science of reading movement continues to grow and at a time that is more important than ever. It's vital we focus on research-based practices to deliver classroom instruction that allows students to learn. If they aren't learning, we need to examine our practices. We may not know what changes are coming next, but we do know we need to stay connected and learning from each other will get us through it. The more we learn and listen, the more we'll be prepared to lead. Our students are counting on us. Today we talk with Susan Newman, a specialist in early literacy development, currently a professor at NYU. Susan's done research in early childhood policy, curriculum, and early reading instruction. We talk with her about the importance of background knowledge and why it's critical to reading comprehension. She's quite passionate about this topic as a matter of equity and access. It was such a pleasure to speak with her, and I know you'll find it helpful. Hello, Susan. Thank you so much for joining us on today's episode. Well, it's, it's nice to be here. Such a pleasure to talk to you today. We have a lot, a lot to get through when we're talking about background knowledge and reading comprehension. But before we get started, our listeners love to hear sort of the journey that you took to get to the place that you are. So I'd love for you to share us a little with us a little bit of that. Well, I think there are many different journeys, but let me focus on one in particular. And I was thinking about this morning, and I was a new fifth grade teacher. And um, as many of you probably experience, when you're a first year teacher, you kind of don't know what you're doing all that much. Um, and, and <laughs> I can you, relate to that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and uh, I had this fifth grade class, and I just loved them. I, I loved them, 
and tried to do so much emotionally for them because I found that they were emotionally needy. But at the same time, of course, I was trying to teach reading. I was trying to do all the different subjects. And my principal came up to me at the end of a observation period. And he looked at me and he said, you know, watching you with your class is just a wonderful experience. You are so emotionally connected with those students. They love you. You love them. It, it's just a joy to be here. But one of the problems I think I'm seeing is that you're not teaching them anything. Uh, ouch. <laughs> and he said that in the kindest way, but um, I went home and of course I, I cried <laughs> and uh, I thought about it and I thought, oh gosh, you know, he's right. That in my effort to connect, I had forgotten that children also need to learn and to learn the skills. And many of these children were flailing. I mean, they were on fifth grade. You could say they maybe were on second grade level reading, but they were really struggling. And so while I was focused so much on one thing, I neglected the other. And that made me really want to do two things, to go back and to learn more about reading, but also to go to the early childhood years where I felt I could prevent problems before they actually happened. Mm. I love that message of prevention. Right. Uh, it's really important. Um, and I think the, the work that you're doing right now, which you're very passionate about, is very connected to that prevention. And we actually invited you on to talk a little bit about background knowledge. This is a series about the elements of Scarborough's rope um, and we've been focusing a lot on the word recognition side. We're shifting to the language comprehension side um, and just right. talking a little bit about the role of background knowledge in reading comprehension. So I'd right. love for you to just explain to us a little bit about comprehension and background knowledge and how they fit together. Great. Well, you know, again, this is an area of passion for me because we see that many of our children, if I go back to my fifth graders again, you saw, you could see that some of them could actually read, um, but they were word callers. Uh, this is a very sort of difficult stage, if you've ever seen it, where children can actually read the words, but they don't understand them. Mm -hmm. And I tried to understand what was going on. I mean, um, they seemed to know those words, but they did not know the meaning of those words. And so I began to really examine um, comprehension much um, in much greater depth. And I focused on the notion that a great deal of my training and of what people were saying is that children really need to activate their background knowledge. Um, that when you read, the first process that a teacher would do is to give them a sense of purpose and say, activate your background knowledge. But then I realized a very valuable lesson. What if they didn't have it? Mm -hmm. What What if they didn't have the background knowledge in order to activate? You could say to them, activate your background knowledge to kingdom come. But if they don't have it, they can't activate it. And so it became a real challenge for me to try and understand, well, what do you do when there isn't any? And that's why content knowledge became so critically important to me. Hmm. That's interesting, <clears throat> um, because I do remember 
Oh, this was a long time ago. I'm surprised I still remember, but I do remember in my undergraduate program learning about like activating prior prior knowledge or yeah, I'm not sure they call it background knowledge at, at that point. So so what 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 do you do? Well, first of all, that impacts reading comprehension. We like we all know that. Um, what what about comprehension? What is the connection there between background knowledge and comprehension? Well, in my view, let me first say that I do not see comprehension as a generic skill. Mm. Some people think so, but I don't. Um, So, for example, if I would read a sixth grade text in science, which is not my forte, (laughs) I would probably have a little bit of a problem in trying to understand some of the concepts and some of the terms Um, I would probably not be able to connect and to activate any background knowledge. And so what I began to realize is that side of Scarborough's um, rope, uh, Mm -hmm. language comprehension, to a great extent, it's two critical things. It's vocabulary and it's, it's knowledge. It's content knowledge. And if you don't have content knowledge, you're likely not to be able to comprehend text. Now, this has an enormous... Um, implication, because what it means is that we have been spending our time on comprehension strategies instead of teaching content knowledge. And and so you're you're recommending or saying then then what we should be doing then is that instead of teaching strategies, we should be building background knowledge. That's right. That's absolutely right. So some of the strategies you often hear about is let's say you read a newspaper at night, you're relatively tired, and uh, you use a comprehension strategy. One of them very clearly is uh, reread. So I reread, but I still don't understand it too well. So I'm then supposed to ask myself questions. Well, I don't really have enough information to ask those questions. All right, so then I'm supposed to summarize. Um, and maybe summarizing is a, another strategy we typically use. But then my summarization is just taking various sentences and plopping them together without really synthesizing that information. So my point is, is that some of the strategies that we have talked about in the past are dependent on having enough content knowledge in order to be able to use them. Mm. So that, I think, is an enormous insight because what it says to us is that from the very beginning, we have to start building content knowledge for our children if they don't have it. That makes a lot of sense to me. I I, I remember um, one of my sons is actually in physics. He's a physics engineer. Um, and he would get excited to talk to me a little bit about what he was learning. And I had to listen and shake my head and right. like just enjoy the conversation because I had no concept what he was talking about at all. Right, right. You're shaking your head and saying, uh-huh, uh-huh, but not necessarily understanding what he's saying. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And you know, it's interesting because let's say that you don't have content knowledge about a passage or, or a student doesn't have content knowledge about a passage. And so then we give them a, or they're, they're not comprehending, they're not able to find the main idea, they're not you know able to summarize. Right. And if we give them a, a, 
an easier to read text that they still don't know anything about. They still probably wouldn't be successful on that. That's right. It's still containing concepts that they haven't been given access to. So, right, we can level it down. We can make shorter sentences, but that does not uh, address the critical issue that they haven't had the experience or they haven't had the knowledge to really gain more knowledge. Hmm. Yeah. And this idea that uh, I, I, th- I think I'm inferring what you said, this idea that you have to have at least some background knowledge to engage in the content or the text of what you're reading. And then hopefully through that, you'll build more content knowledge that you can take then to another text you would read about the same topic. That's exactly right. So mm-hmm. what happens is that you don't need a lot of knowledge. You need entry into the subject matter uh, uh, enough that you can start the process and accumulate more knowledge. Knowledge creates more knowledge. Mm-hmm. So, and, and the interesting thing to me, Susan, is that children want to be expert. They want to be expert in a domain, and it kind of doesn't matter what domain that is. It's the feeling that goes along with knowing things about anything. So a child, for example, who comes to school knowing a lot about baseball, he feels good about himself. There's an affect to having content knowledge. And other children will recognize that and say, oh, he's the go-to guy for, you know, baseball information. So it has a a duplicative effect of providing a good feeling about yourself and about knowing things. Children want to be uh, knowledgeable. Mm, That makes a lot of sense. When I was a teacher, I know um, it was fun for me to deliver like topics and and domains and content to students because they really did want to be scientists and historians and and know lots of things. Right, they do. <laughs> and and at some point vocabulary you know also is a is a connection to this. Now I know we're not specifically talking about the strand vocabulary but but we know, you know, Scarborough's rope isn't in isolation, right? The strands all sort of interweave with each other. What's the relationship here between background knowledge or content knowledge and vocabulary? Uh, there's a strong relationship, um, a very integral relationship. But um, I, I think it speaks to something that maybe it's a little bit of a tangent, Susan, but I'll, oh, I'll say it anyhow. Ahead. All right. <laughs> you go ahead. Okay. One of the things that we do very often in, in teaching vocabulary is we teach words that are not necessarily related to one another and not intentionally focused on building that content knowledge. So, for example, I went to a, a particular core reading program. It's a core reading program. It, it, that's not relevant. And the words of the week that children were supposed to learn were people, the word people, and the word around. Now you tell me what around, the word around, has to do with people, right? Yep, not related. (laughs) Not related. And that might be sort of a tier one-like word. They're both quite easy to to read. Mm -hmm. But then you go to more difficult words, um, and, and... the same phenomena often occurs, that children are taught to learn sophisticated words or tier two words without any connection to those words. So a different strategy is to teach tier three words or what 
uh, we call content-related words, where those words are related to one another. So for example, if I know a manatee and a, a whale are both marine mammals, then I begin to build knowledge and a knowledge network. It's not only the vocabulary words, I know how the vocabulary words are connected and how they may relate to a larger concept, which is marine mammals. And that's what I think we should be doing, not only in teaching content, but teaching our vocabulary, to think about the words and categories of words that we can teach children so that they learn more content knowledge. Hmm. That makes sense. And so that would require then us to be in topics for longer than a single lesson or even a single week, maybe. Exactly. So in the very beginning of our work, we focus on topics, not themes, but topics. What do you mean? What's the difference between the two? Well, a topic is, first thing, a topic is an informational, um, something that is informational. So, for example, we believe that children, when they get to third grade, are going to need more about science and social studies. They're certainly going to be smarter about science and math than I certainly am. <laughs> and so we we teach those kinds of words uh, in, in what we call topics. And the topics might be uh, the mysteries of space or insects, or wild animals. And the difference between what we call a topic and theme is that themes very often are broadly related. Um, For example, a grocery store, um, it might be a theme, right? And Mm -hmm. we have words like uh, cashier and meat and milk. They're all related to a larger theme of grocery stores. But notice there's no relationship between the words themselves. Yeah. In the words we teach um, in topics, we try to create categories or concepts as we teach them. So we'll say to the children, uh, a bee um, uh, is a type of insect. Um, a, uh, uh, so that children begin to learn that insect has, you know, three uh, body parts, six legs, and that a spider may not be an insect because it has eight legs. So what we're trying to do in teaching topics is we're teaching categories um, of, of vocabulary words, which will add to knowledge networks. Another example might be we'll teach uh, healthy foods or fruit. And we teach banana is a type of fruit. Strawberry is a type of fruit so that children get a sense of some of the common properties of that category. Ah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so I know, and I'm referring to, right now I'm referring to an article um, that you authored in Perspectives on Language and Literacy, published by the IDA. Um, mm-hmm. You talk about five research-based principles to then build these knowledge networks. Um, can you talk about some of those principles? Sure. I, I actually, I'd be delighted to, <laughs> because uh, I think they're they're really important. I think one of the things we try to do. You mentioned this before, but one of the things we often do in teaching is we go too fast. Um, mm. And what I mean by that is we'll teach a particular topic and then move on to something else. Um, In our work, we try to spend two weeks on a particular topic. Sometimes we'll even do three weeks if children are really engaged. 
And that's really important because it takes time to develop the depth of knowledge that we want children to have, as well as the vocabulary words that are associated with that. Um, comprehension and content is a slow developing process. So we have to uh, give children a, enough time to, to get deeper in those ideas. So our first principle that we focus on is the big idea. And what we say is there are certain big ideas that we want to try and um, uh, convey to children. So for example, uh, wild animals, um, insects, how are they all alike or, or pets? So I'll say to the children, wild insects, pets, you know, um, uh, uh, what other topic? Well, related to that. And I'll say to them, how are they all alike? Well, a pet is a living thing and needs food to survive. Wild animal is a living thing and it needs food to survive. Same thing with insects. Live animal needs food to survive. So those big ideas are cross-cutting themes that cut across many different topics. And we think that's really important because children will develop a sense of order and structure in the knowledge that they're developing. So that's our first big, um, uh, big idea um, in terms of helping children develop content knowledge. Hmm. And so you do that explicitly then as opposed to going back to the beginning of our conversation, assuming they have it or trying to activate prior knowledge. We just like instruct them and start from there. That's exactly right. So for example, instead of saying, what is this story about? Well, if they knew it, they wouldn't have to come to school. Uh, we, what we, Really, what we want to do is we want to give them our second principle, which is word knowledge and explicitness. So in other words, when we start a story, instead of doing a picture walk, let's go through the pictures. A uh, picture walk can be problematic because if the children get the wrong idea, they're likely to keep that idea in oh, their heads. Do you know what I mean? Point. Yeah. So what we do is we say this story is about, and then let's pretend that this story is about a cave. And so we'll, what we'll do is we'll start and we'll say to the children, we're going to read a wonderful story. This book is the story of caves. A cave is a hole in a mountain. And just a simple phrase, notice, just a simple phrase. I didn't talk forever, but what that does is that it sets the purpose for the children and it provides an easy, child-friendly definition of the word. Mm -hmm. And they'll remember that. They'll remember those kinds of things. So the explicit instruction, we have so much data, Susan, on the importance of explicitness. And I, I just would love teachers to remember that principle, that that enables all children to achieve. So for example, when we see that four out of five children are raising their hands and the fifth children child does not raise their hand, they're likely not to because they don't know. And what we want to do is we want to begin every lesson with all children sharing that knowledge so they all know. Mm. 
So that's our second principle. That's great. And I love that um, reminder about explicit instruction because I think we've talked about it in other episodes. But um, but when we're thinking about building background knowledge, I think sometimes teachers believe that exposure is and that implicit instruction is enough for what kids needs. And we and, and we know that that's not true in, in all of, of how students learn. That's right. I think we all appreciate um, uh, an even playing field. And that's what explicitness does. It levels the playing field so everyone can participate as a community of learners. And that's really important. That's great. So our third principle, can I go on? You can go on. <laughs> All right. Our, our third principle is uh, that children really need multiple genres um, in order to learn. We never start with an information book um, when we are talking about our topics because the information books have uh, greater vocabulary, greater density of concepts. And so it's, a, it's often a little bit difficult to begin that way. So what we often do is we begin with a predictable book, a predictable book in our topic. It may be the topic of insects or marine mammals, but a predictable book is wonderful because it provides co-participation for our children. You know, if I say, um, brown bear, brown bear, what do you see? You know that the children are going to see, I see a green frog looking at me. So in other words, there's a co-participation that is just a natural with predictable books. Plus it provides the vocabulary again and again. But of course, predictable books have limitations. They have, you know, wonderful language, wonderful lilting sounds of our language, and they create a mnemonic. Mm -hmm. So many of you can remember conjunction, junction, what's your <laughs> function, oh, right? No. I'm going to list, I'm going to hear that in my head all day long now. I know, I know, I hate to do that to you. <laughs> but, but the fact of the matter is, is that predictable books have that mnemonic quality. And so they're very important for children, especially those who may struggle a little bit with language. But then we go on to narrative nonfiction and storybooks because storybooks have an emotional content. You know, you could read about pigs, you know, and as an information book, but if you read Charlotte's Web, oh my gosh, you know, I right. mean, the emotion that you might feel when you read a storybook. So we then move on to storybooks and, and get children to know and recall and understand story structure. But then finally, we always go to information book over our two, three week period because the information book will provide that wonderful content knowledge. Plus the children will have heard the words again and again from the predictable book and the narrative nonfiction. So they can really deeply understand those information books. So we always do it in that sequence to provide the multiple genres so that children can really begin to build a deeper sense and a, a greater comfort with content knowledge. That's great. I'm going to say back to you what I think I heard you say, because I sure. think this is a this is a nuanced point that people, people could maybe miss. So if we are doing a topic of, let's say we're doing a topic of farm animals or farms, sure. that you don't have to jump just to informational text with that. You should actually scaffold students starting with 
a, a great picture book to be able to engage them into the storyline and narrative, which comes much easier to them uh, than, than the structure of an informational text, to include all genres when we're talking about that topic. Exactly. You said it better than I did, but <laughs> um, exactly. So what you're doing is you're actually using the text as a scaffold. And that's really important to remember because sometimes teacher questioning can actually disrupt children's content knowledge. So we're always very careful in using the text and remembering when to talk with our children because again, sometimes the interruptions can affect comprehension. I love what you just said, using the text as the scaffold. That's right. Um, because we do that as adults. If I don't understand something, I will go back to another source to try to figure it out and go to that text to help me scaffold. That's lovely. That's right. Thank you for sharing that. That's right. Thank you. Well, I'll go on to my next. Please do. Okay. Um, my next uh, big principle is distributed review. Um, and I think, again, we forget this a little bit um, when we teach. Distributive review is not just review, it's review over time. So very often in the description that we just talked about, whether it's farm animals or marine mammals, I will have children repeat and learn those words and content again and again through these different texts. But if I never revisit it, Susan, they'll forget children. They'll, mm. they'll forget it. Yeah. And so what we have to do is we have to go back and, and do it again a little bit later. And what we found is distributive review is what we call spaced review. That means not repeating it immediately, but repeating it uh, uh, at various intervals over time. Hmm. So we we will do repeated reading, but then we'll take a little break, go to another topic, show the topic cross connections with our big ideas, and then maybe go back and, and talk about our book again. So we, we, we have to be careful to not forget and to remember that children are likely to go on to the next topic without seeing those cross connections. And that's where we're building those knowledge networks. We're reminding children what they've learned and how it, it creates greater depth over time. And, and this says to me then, and I, maybe this isn't true, but it feels to me then a classroom teacher needs to be really thoughtful. And I wouldn't even say a classroom teacher, but a, an entire grade level to be really thoughtful about the, the topics that they're introducing and the connection and the coherence of those topics across the grade level. Is that right? That's absolutely right. Coherence is a, a, a perfect word here. Because what you're helping children to do is to create a mosaic, putting all those ideas together in a knowledge network. And if you don't do it explicitly, many children cannot do it on their own. Um, they haven't had the experiences to do it um, before. And so what you're doing is creating an intentional connection. And that's what they need, especially those who are struggling. Hmm, that makes sense. Well, why don't we go on to your last one? Because I have a feeling this is a great extension of what we just said. Well, thank you. So 
Uh, my last one is intentional opportunities for language engagement. And this, oh, I'm so passionate about, Susan, because, <laughs> uh, because one of the things that um, we know is that sometimes teachers do too much talking and children do too much listening. And what we know about knowledge is that knowledge is engaging. Oh, children just love it. And once they start on it, they, they really want to uh, develop more and more. So we have a term we call conversational turns. And what this means is that it's almost like a conversational duet between a teacher and students. And we do it as a whole group rather than picking on individual children very often. So in other words, I'll have a whole group of children who has listened to this wonderful story of marine mammals, and then I'll engage in very quick uh, in conversational turns so that I speak and then the children speak. I speak and the children speak. And in doing that, what we're doing is we're providing opportunities for them to talk and talk a lot. We're providing opportunities for those L children, English language learners, to feel like they're part of a team. You know what I mean? They're not mm -hmm. singled out. They're not special. They are part of the classroom community and they're engaging in these conversations. But the important thing also is the strict amount of interaction has a dramatic effect on expressive language. So we have seen in our own data and data from others that that leads to content knowledge and comprehension because they have to be on, they have to be engaged, and that's really critically important. And, and that's another connection that we actually saw on the word recognition side is this connection between language, what students say and what they're able to read. That's right. That's right. If they can talk about it, they can begin to deeply understand it. You might even remember when you were studying for an exam years ago that often you had to say it out loud or express it in some way, whether it's writing or, or talking about it, in order to know, ah, I do know what I'm talking about. And then you also know, hey, sometimes... I need to go back and relearn because I don't know it well enough. Yeah. I actually noticed that as, as an adult. I mean, I, right. I recently got a dog and take him out for a walk all the time. And what I found myself doing now is telling my dog about the things that I just read in the morning. <laughs> and it actually helps me remember it better and work through it a little bit. <laughs> That's right. Right. Exactly. You're working through. Yeah. Well, I'd like to read a couple of sentences from, from the end of this, uh, this article that you wrote. And for our sure. listeners, we will link them to this in the show notes. Um, sure. But here's the sentences. It says, despite the numerous consensus reports on the extant research on comprehension, we have ignored the factor that most powerfully predicts it, knowledge. Instead, we have fallen prey to quick fixes, a wish fulfillment that some sort of monitoring, activation, or strategy might repair what has been lacking in background knowledge. That's right. I still believe that, even though I wrote it about a year ago. I still believe that strongly. Yes. And, and the next sentence actually says, it hasn't worked. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah. Go, tell me more. 
Oh, I was just going to say that one of the things that we've done wrong, Susan, and I, uh, and I love this scholar, Jean Shaw, many years ago, uh, talked about children go from learning to read to reading to learn. Mm-hmm. And I love her work otherwise, but that is a wrong assumption. And it assumes that children are working on decoding and then magically around three, third or fourth grade, well, then they're going to be engaged and want to learn to you know, use reading to learn. But that doesn't happen. What happens is the skill they're developing early on the way in which they're reading, the reason for reading is occurring in those very, very early years. So if we don't engage them in content from the very beginning, by the time they get to fourth grade, they don't know why they're reading and they call it boring. And of course, you and I know that reading is anything but boring. Right. Um, so I think my my point here is we've got to start early. We've got to start immediately and know that um, children are eager to learn and to use the content to engage them. Yeah. Well, and Scarborough's Rope is organized that way. We can get kids that rich, lovely uh, knowledge through read aloud texts in kindergarten, first, second grade. Absolutely. They love it. And you know what? They love being read to when they're, you know, sixth graders, eighth graders. Yes. They still love it. That's true. That's really true. Well, what are some of the new things you're thinking about or projects that you're working on right now? Well, one of the things that we're very interested in, and you're going to not believe this to some extent (laughs) after we've (laughs) talked about this, but we've been focusing a lot on screen media and the opportunity for children to learn through educational screen media. Interesting. And um, what we find is that children learn uh, vocabulary and content through screen media, and then that often connects with books. So we have uh, actually just conducted an experiment that had children uh, read and watch um, uh, a wonderful story on on science. Um, And what we found is they learned uh, more vocabulary words, and they learn more content when they had cross-media connections. Hmm. So I think this is a natural for many of us, especially when I think of families at home now. They feel a little guilty that their children are watching screen media. But if it's educational, if it's good, um, it often promotes children's interest in book reading. And I think that's something for us to consider, the cross-media connections and crossing boundaries um, more and more. Yeah, it's so accessible to kids. It seems that's like right. you could take advantage of of not an either-or maybe, but maybe a both-and. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been just super interesting, Susan. We appreciate your time. And and before we close out, I would just love for you to leave our listeners with some takeaways or things to think more about. Sure. Um, I'm always happy to do that. (laughs) I guess guess one of the things I'd like to suggest to teachers especially is that we're really doing harm for our children if we don't teach rich content early on. Um, to them that they are so interested in learning. And so many times I will go into the classroom and I, I will see reading instruction without a connection to rich content and a focus on what they're reading. And so I urge 
um, teachers to think about uh, issues of ways in which we can address content earlier on and to think about reading as something that is more than just learning the skill, but really engaging their minds. Mm -hmm. That's great. And it feels a little bit like the advice you're giving teachers is full circle back to maybe the advice that you got from that first principal to actually teach them something. Right. Um, I always feel a little guilty, Susan, when I tell that story, but I think it's a cautionary tale. You got to love them, but you got to teach them at the same time. No, I love it because being vulnerable like that and taking that feedback in, that's a hard thing to do, especially when you're a brand new teacher in the classroom. So thank you so much, number one, for being being a guest on this episode, but for number number two, and even more importantly, I guess, is for the work that you're doing for students. Uh, We appreciate it so much. Well, thank you. It's been delightful. Thanks for listening and keep your feedback coming. Do you want to learn more? Be sure to stay connected by subscribing on your favorite podcast app and join our Facebook discussion group, Science of Reading the Community. Visit amplify.com to check out all our free literacy events and upcoming Science of Reading symposium. Until next time, keep the hope, take the action, and stay in touch.